Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. Mario Vasilescu is co-founder of Readocracy, an online learning platform that makes all the content you consume count. Readocracy includes a knowledge profile that quantifies and showcases your passions, private insights like a Fitbit for your information diet, and social features that reward people for being well-informed. With his team, Readocracy is on a mission to create a future where how we feed our minds matters just as much as how we feed our bodies. Mario is a robotics engineer turned designer, digital strategist, and is now founder obsessed with media ecology. Prior to entering the world of startups, he led digital innovation projects and digital literacy campaigns for national organizations in Canada and France. He is based in Toronto. Mario Vasilescu, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, It's really great to talk to you. So, you know, Mario... You have a background in technology, and you've moved into EdTech with this fascinating company called Readocracy. Tell us about Readocracy and how you got your journey into education technology in the first place. It's a really good, big question. So (laughs) Readocracy, kind of at its simplest level, is a platform which gives you credit for all the content you consume and the self-directed learning you do. So all the articles you spend time on, papers, YouTube videos, podcasts, books you can add, you know, who's there to actually make that count for you and quantify it and verify it. Over the course of our lives, that can amount to as much time as we've spent studying during four degrees. So it's a bit crazy that that wouldn't add up to anything and just disappear into the ether. And so Redocracy is the platform that with our technology, we can really, with confidence, qualify, verify, and quantify your time so you can you can get credit for it. You can do stuff with it, whether it's understanding yourself better or proving to the world that you're more than just your four-year degree or the, your last you know job title. So in practice, what that actually means, what Redocracy is, how it works, is you can use it as a browser extension that you add onto your browser. You can use it as a mobile app. You get it on your phone. If you're a website owner, you just add it to your site and it works for your visitors. And from that point in time, thanks to our technology, we are just able to verify the time you spend with content, catalog it, quantify it. And that goes into your account, right? It's as simple as that. And once it's in your account, there's kind of two primary benefits you get. One is private. So all the ways that you can start leveraging your learning privately. And the main one there is these insights that are like a Fitbit for your information diet. So you can start understanding how all this content you're consuming might be affecting your mood and your bias and patterns of knowledge and all sorts of really cool stuff like that. And, you know, and a few of other stuff privately. And then there's the public side, the public benefit, which is you get this knowledge profile. It's like a personal web page, like an intellectual portfolio that you can use to showcase the best of your learning, all the stuff you love that you feel comfortable making public. So you can show to the world, not just like directly listed, but also quantified your commitment and credibility to any subject you're passionate about. So that's what Redocracy is. There's obviously, you know, a lot to unpack there. But on the EdTech side, it's interesting when I'm asked, you know, how did you get into EdTech? And I'd actually say we're like, we're not necessarily an EdTech company. It's And just the way we see the ecosystem is that learning is something that happens everywhere and we can force it into an EdTech silo. But if we look at the content and learning ecosystem, we really see three broad pillars of media, academia, and corporate. And, you know, Academia is where things are processed, 
where things are improved through learning and the whole learning ecosystem has evolved. Media is where it's perpetuated and learn a lot of things passively and it's kind of like fast moving. And then corporate is where we kind of, you know, make money with it and often cases take it further in like an applied environment. And so I see Redocracy sitting underneath those things and more generally the media ecosystem, which includes, you know, these pillars, which of course, and, and learning is arguably the most important one. I myself am a Redocracy user, and I really enjoy using the platform. And one of the things that I sort of, the way I think about it is it sort of allows you to formalize informal learning. As you go around the web, as you go read the things you are interested in online, it tags them automatically. I'd like to ask you about how it does that. It sort of figures out what they're about and then gives you credit. Literally, as you go scroll down the page, you fill in a sort of a progress bar. And when you finish reading, you finish the progress bar and it counts it towards a profile and then gives you reports about what you're reading, what you're learning, what you're doing. It even works for videos. Tell us a little bit about, you know, it's a really fascinating product. Tell us a little bit about how it understands what people are doing all over the internet. Yeah. So, I mean, there's so many aspects of that. And one of them I just want to start with is even before you answering that, the significance of privacy. We're really proud of how privacy first we are. And it actually took a tremendous amount of work to create a user interface that catalogs and tracks so much and yet make people have no doubt that they can trust us. That in today's day and age is Herculean task, given people's paranoia. And so that I think is just a really big piece before you even get to how you do it. It's like, will people trust you to even let you do it? And so that's been a big thing. I'm sure you noticed when you were onboarding, you know, there's a personal welcome video. There's like uh, big disclaimers on every single step saying, if you're uncomfortable, click here so we can explain it to you. Like it's all over the place, just assuming that they already think the worst of whoever's trying to give them something. But then how we track and how we assess. So the most complex part, which is our bread and butter, is the nature of tracking content online has been shaped by surveillance capitalism. And when I say surveillance capitalism, for those who don't know, it's this idea that all the big tech companies exist to extract data from you, like you're a, an oil well that they need to suck things out of your brain so that they can then understand you and target you back and make money off of you and you know suck up more of your attention. And so that was largely based on advertising and a, a very cheap impression of what content is and its purpose. And so the analytics related to that were always fairly simple because you... You didn't really care about what somebody was looking at as long as it fulfilled the reaction or the click or the view. And so why would I care what you're looking at? You've only recently started looking at that and only from the perspective of brand safety. Like, do I want to be associated with this, you know, whatever right-wing militia or whatever it might be? But so outside of that, the standard for measuring content was very simplistic and nowhere near enough to deem whether somebody had actually read something, right? Like you could easily just zip to the bottom of a page or leave the tab open or whatever. And these systems and the standard for measuring things, you know, that would be good enough. That's obviously not good enough. And so what we did is we've created a system that goes so much deeper. And it's looking at behavior patterns. It's using AI to, you know, understand what you're even looking at. And so, you know, there's a lot to it. But the end result is that we get as close to the reliability that you'd experience from camera-based tracking without needing to use a camera. And that's a huge difference because, again, the privacy nightmare that that would be, we don't want to track more, right? So we only want to be doing this on content. Why would I need your camera on all the time? And so, yeah, that's how we do it. And that's kind of the secret sauce that's really important and different. And then in terms of categorization, I think it's really glad you asked that because, I mean, there's machine learning in there, but the basis is really just 
studying and evolving really keyword tracking. I can tell you it's improved dramatically even since we turned it on. And that's going to keep evolving and benchmarking against what matters to people, how they sort things evolving. And so it's kind of an intelligent keyword system. But what I just want to add to that is the significance of not having to do an extra click. So there's so much research out there that shows that 80 to 90% of our learning or our knowledge or our insights, however you want to, depending on the study you look at, disappears because we can't be bothered to take that extra click to have to sort it. And in often cases, the sort is actually two or three clicks. And worse than like, just as bad as that, if not worse, is when you do it haphazardly. So because one click is all you'll tolerate, and that one click means throwing it to a giant uncategorized pile, it's the same issue we have where more data actually becomes a burden rather than less. And the same way, you know, I won't name names, but there's read later services out there where people so commonly bemoan how you have giant pile that just ends up stressing you out and you never get back to because you're afraid to look at it. And so having a system that is able to detect and categorize for you just as you organically learn in the flow of learning and the flow of work without having to do that extra behavior most of the time is a subtle difference that actually makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, I have an interesting personal experience with that. Usually what I read on the internet is education and technology, as you'd imagine. And also I read a lot of politics and I've actually given Readocracy, you know, a pretty good amount of permission to sort of watch my reading as I go around the internet, which, as you say, took a lot of clicks to actually give it that kind of setting. But the other day I was doing a case study that happened to be about bicycling. So I was reading a number of articles in a row about bicycle manufacturers and Readocracy popped up and said, you know, we've noticed a new topic that you're reading a lot about, which is cycling. You know, is this a personal interest or a work interest? And I was like, well, this is just a passing fad for me. It was really interesting to just see your own behavior sort of tracked like that. I've never read a cycling article online in my life. And it noticed that. I'm curious if, you know, as you see learners start to use Readocracy, or I say users start to use Readocracy, do people let you know that they tend to, that it's sort of giving them insight into their own behavior in a way that they might not have had otherwise? Yeah, absolutely. That's actually the number one piece of feedback we get. I mean, we're about to dive into some formal academic studies of the impact of Redocracy, but just anecdotally, I'm very confident in that because it's been so consistently the one thing we heard back. And what's really interesting is it's even subtler than that. So, I mean, there's plenty of research that shows that when somebody's observing you, you or you feel like you're being observed, even if it's not an actual person, uh, you're more likely to be responsible. And, you know, part of Redocracy's privacy approach is to show something on the page that you know it's on. We don't want it to be some extension which is invisibly tracking and you're always wondering if it's on or off. It's like, that's uncomfortable. That's you always see it. But the fact that you see it and that there's a little indicator that is letting you know if you've, you know, you've hit the threshold to start getting credit. Once you have started getting credit, like the progress you're making. And when I say progress, again, like giving your real attention because if you're just a zip to the bottom, nothing would happen. That little bubble, <laughs> the number of times we've gotten feedback voluntarily from people saying that thing has changed how I consume content because it being there and knowing that it's going somewhere and I'm going to end up having to basically stare myself in the mirror by looking at my data or, you know, I have to choose whether I make this public or not. And so why am I wasting an opportunity to make something valuable public by just storing away something private I'm ashamed of? All this calculus like happens in this subconscious loop in the back of your mind. And then you end up saying like, uh, you know what? Okay, maybe just this one, but I'm not, this is it. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole I was going to go down or 
or not even. It's like, you know what? Actually, no, I don't want to be associated with this and I don't want this showing up in my data and, and the data is telling me it's not good. I'm not going to. So it has been very interesting how consistently that comes back to us. Yeah, it is. I've noticed it myself. You really do feel different, especially the psychological mechanism I've noticed is if I read like half an article and then, you know, the progress bar is sort of half full and you have this moment of like, well, you know, do I want to finish this or not? But you have that goal gradient effect, they call it. You're halfway there and you see the end in sight and you totally want to read it. And that just that feeling of there being something that cares, whether you finish reading the article or not, is a very different feeling than doing something completely on your own. And something cares and there being a consequence, right? Like I often talk about the fact that, you know, infobesity is something we're trying to make people more aware of. And it's this idea that not having consequences or feedback to thing you consume makes you consume recklessly and mindlessly. And that applies equally to food as it does to how we feed our brains, like our minds, really, like how we think. And when you look back at, you know, the height of the obesity epidemic and people trying to figure out what to do about it, that was the main issue. You had no nutrition labels. There's barely anything in school that was, you know, good to make people remember. There was no discourse. There was no language. You couldn't even talk about it because you don't know what words to use. And so, yeah, we were all just getting completely out of control. And so it feels like we have the same thing with information now. And we need that feedback. You need that context. You need that language. And so that, you know, not having a consequence, it's it's the difference between, I don't know, spending two hours on like celebrity tabloid clickbait and that not having any consequence. There's no reward. There's no feedback. You don't feel bad about it. It's like, it's just you have to rely on your own guilt, which like you probably have been desensitized to by this point versus something actually tangibly appearing and give you tangible data and tangible language. That's like night and day, that difference, right? And so that's really, I think, the significance as well of like, not just somebody who cares, but just like any sort of consequence or feedback to it, whether it's positive or negative. That's a great metaphor. You know, it reminds me of, yeah, you mentioned this term infobesity, which is fascinating. I've never heard that term. You know, when menus were forced to put calorie counts on their menus in certain states, and I think it's throughout the US now, that literally put a number on your choices that you never had before. It never felt like there were any consequences it reminds me of how the phones started adding screen time recordings and reports as well. And, you know, when you see a report that says, you know, you spent six and a half hours on your phone this week, you know, or more or less, it's a real reflective moment that makes you have to sort of stop and think, is this how I want to be spending my time? And I think bureaucracy feeds into that as well. Yeah. And on the point of screen time, you know, it's funny because anyone who's listening who's used screen time it's so easy to underestimate it. I think we're all invariably shocked when we see the number. It's like, this can't possibly be true. And then you look at the breakdown, it's, you're horrified. And during the pandemic, Americans on average spent 13 hours a day with media. And I think that's the number, like it was an all-time high. But it wasn't, you know, wild thing is it wasn't that much of an increase from pre-pandemic. Like it was more, but like not a lot more. And you think of that number and you're like, how could that possibly be? Like that's more than half of the hours in a day and you need to take into account sleep too. So are we just glued to our screens all day? And it's really profound to see that. But what I wanted to say about screen time is that gives us quantity. And there's a bit of a misunderstanding there. And I think it can be dangerous when we just say, oh, it's just the quantity I need to worry about. Well, that's not true because, hey, if you spend eight hours, you know, everything in moderation, so even that would still be too much. But if it's eight hours with some of the most timeless classics that history has ever seen in your respective field, I mean, hey, that sounds like a very impressive and productive day. But when you take that eight hours and it's equal across eight hours of that or eight hours of whatever it may be scrolling listicles, that's problematic. And so I think the other importance of redocracy when we talk about learning is what are you learning? Is it reliable content? Is it 
polarizing content? Is it trustworthy content? Is it dense content? Like, what are all these things? And so I think introducing that quality component is so important. And, and you know, and if we look at learning in a broader context of how people are informing themselves these days, there is an issue of the internet optimizing your quantity, not quality. And I think having a system that is motivational and lightweight to make you reflect on the quality, not just the quantity, is a very important comparison and contrast to just screen time. Screen time puts together low quality internet time and high quality internet time in one big number. Rather, you know, it doesn't parcel out whether you've been learning about something really important or following, you know, the news of the European war or whether you're as you say, reading movie reviews or listicles or celebrity gossip. And I think Redocracy really does that. So, you know, obviously, Redocracy is named after democracy. And you mentioned sort of in passing just there that, you know, about reading polarizing content. And I know Redocracy has some really interesting features around actually the trustworthiness and the polarization of the content that you're consuming. Tell us about how it figures that out and sort of what that feature set looks like. Yeah, so... It's so important to unpack this because of, you know, where we are in society right now, unfortunately. But we're not trying to be the arbiters of truth. And we also think it's very important for people to have transparency around any labels they see. So we currently partner with a number of third-party databases and partners, which themselves are transparent. So they have analysts that just focus on analyzing as many sources as possible, having a transparent methodology that you can check for yourself, and then having a page for every source that says, here's why it has this listing, like here's their track record, here's what we flagged that was problematic, or whatever it may be. And so we're using those partners, and plus, you know, some of our own machine learning that also looks for loaded language and exaggeration and whatnot, then we're able to look at all your behavior and start flagging things. And this is getting better and better. I mean, we're we're soon going to be doing really interesting things where like in real time, we'll say like, here's the loaded language on the page and whatever it may be. But then in aggregate, you can start seeing trends, right? Like over the past 30 days, am I skewing left or right? Or did I accidentally consume some misinformation? In real time, actually, if something you're looking at is from a source that is a known source of misinformation or inciting violence, you'll get a little extra warning triangle. And even that is interesting because psychology tells us if I tell you you're wrong, you're just going to get mad. You're going to dig in your heels and say, no, you're the stupid one. And so the idea here is to use, you know, objective, calm language that gives people the benefit of the doubt that says like, hey, you probably already knew this, but just so you know, this is flagged as such. And here's a link to like find out why. And if you have a problem with it, like, you know, we welcome you to report it type of thing. And the other thing, by the way, is that in Redocracy, you can add context labels because you could be a misinformation researcher. You could be just trying to inform yourself to understand what's on the other side. And so you can't add labels to say, like, I was doing this for work, I strongly disagree, like, I'm just skeptically curious, like, you can add those labels. And I just want to also add, because we've been in conversations with companies that had worked with government and whatnot, and they, they were very sensitive to these things. And they would kind of say, well, you know, we're currently in a political climate, especially in the US, where everything is treated as censorship. And even if, like, people who are politically motivated, or simply have been like misinformed, you telling them that a lie is a lie will to them be oppression or some deep political agenda. And so I just mentioned that because it's so important, first of all, to make that distinction between a Chinese style social credit system where you don't understand the algorithm, you don't understand how the sources are categorized, you never know when something is categorized and you don't know how you're being judged and you'll never know. And if you ask about it, you'll probably go to jail or something, like who knows? In this system that we're talking about, you know, if you want to call it a redocracy or the structure, everything is transparent. 
You understand why. You're informed why. You're given the ability to complain against it if you really think it's inconsistent. You get an opportunity to present to others, you know, your varied self. And so it's just all so transparent. That's a night and day thing. And it really puts the onus on people to do their homework and prove why they should be credible rather than just screaming censorship. And so that's just a very big difference. And just as a last thing, it's funny because people say, oh, you're trying to censor me. You're trying to influence my mind by making me aware of these things. And it's actually the opposite. I think the good way to think about it is all these platforms are trying to, for their business model, provably, are basically radicalizing you for attention. And your ability to see through that and understand how you're being influenced, that's the freedom. That's the ability to be in control. And without that, you're actually just encouraging that like very scary manipulation where you are having your freedom taken away from you. So when I think about Redocracy's model, one thing that strikes me is that some of the people who are loudest in the public discourse and who actually read the most online actually know the least because what they're reading is almost entirely misinformation. How does Redocracy handle that kind of user? Yeah, and it's such an important distinction and a huge part of Redocracy. So we're partnered with these third-party partners and databases that help us map polarization. And we have our own systems of detecting loaded language and whatnot. And so it's important to distinguish whether something is, you know, just has some bias or if it's a straight up known source of constant misinformation or inciting violence. Those are, you know, it's important to flag those things and be aware of them. And so in our system, not only do you have this warning label that appears, but also you have insights that we like to say are like a Fitbit for your information diet. And within those, you on this page, you know, this dashboard that is only visible to you, you could see how the mood might be coming out, like the mood that's detected might be affecting your mood. You might be seeing how many times you consume misinformation, how far are you going to a certain political extreme? You know, and so in this way, you start being made aware of your blind spots or polarization or narrowness. And I think that's really important just to be aware for yourself. But also, again, that's on the social side, people on your profile, based on what you make public, they can see where you get your information. And, you know, if this was in a conversation context, again, if somebody was saying something and it was using Redocracy, you would have that flag that would say, well, this person has gotten a lot of their information from these known misinformation sources. Here they are just for yourself. And, you know, again, that transparency where people can make a call themselves, but they're informed actually to be aware of it. So that's kind of how we address that. And I do agree, it's so important. It's again, this idea of quantity versus quality. It's important to show you're well informed, but also how you inform yourself. And, and again, in a way that's transparent, where nobody passes judgment without the ability for somebody else to understand the context. And so it's really important for people to be able to go in and say, okay, well, how is this person informing themselves? And okay, you're saying it's misinformation. Why? What are the sources? Okay, let me see for myself. Here's the rationale behind why it's a problem and using it like that. Yeah, that's really well said. It's a very interesting way to look at it and to categorize content. You know, it strikes me as a very relevant method to sort of teach media literacy. You mentioned sort of misinformation researchers or various types of people who may be seeking out certain types of polarizing or misinformation. But I would imagine for teenagers or for people just entering the internet culture, it might be an incredibly good learning tool to understand that, you know, as you're researching for your term paper, some of the sites you're looking at maybe have disinformation, others may have bias. I'm curious if you've seen any teachers or sort of heard anybody from the education world think about using Redocracy for a media literacy tool. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's been more of a case of like, we haven't had the bandwidth or like, we weren't in market enough yet. It's just starting now. We're starting pilots at different schools and with different teachers. But it's like, either it's in courses where this is like a big part of the curriculum, or it's even in courses where it's just like, I think my students should passively have this element uh, as they're learning for whatever the subject may be, just having this as a nice layer on top. So that's definitely it. And I think the importance of it is that if you try to teach media literacy, the act of teaching, often we think of it as having to set time aside. You know, you have only have so many weeks to work with. I have to do extra work around this. How am I getting students to care about it? When you weave this in organically into their existing flow, and it happens on an ongoing basis, that is maybe the most effective learning you can do in terms of internalizing. And so that's, I think, part of the interest as well. Not only is it saving you time as an educator, but it's making it way more impactful so that when you do want to talk about it, um, students are, you know, can relate in a much more personal fashion. It's not just theory at that point. They've lived it. Yeah. You're basically giving them like x-ray glasses to understand on the websites they visit, whether they're credible, whether they're, they have political bias, and also just making sure that they know that that it knows they're reading, which is an interesting way to do as well, that they're actually theoretical. Exactly. And in a broad applied fashion, right? Because if we give people tools, which are just like, hey, turn this on when you feel like seeing your bias or like when you remember to check, it's like not everybody feels like that all the time or they forget about it. That those things are still valuable. I like, certainly applaud people who are do- focusing on that. But weaving it into this concept of lifelong learning and just how you generally inform yourself broadly and, and all the benefits that are to that, you know, for your reputation and for your career that makes it fit in a sense where you're not compartmentalizing it to say like, oh, this particular semester I'm learning about it and then never again. It kind of fits into this ongoing thing where it's like, no, I could keep using this for life, this learning tool. And just alongside, it's an organic part of my media journey. A hundred percent. It could follow a student from high school throughout college and into their working life. And you're constantly getting feedback on what you're reading and what your political leanings might be and if you're accessing misinformation and how much time you're spending. It's not limited to any one, you know, module of a class or any age. Yeah. And on the point of democracy, I just wanted to mention because I think it's important in an education context. So we have a post where we talk about this, like the philosophy behind the name and the platform, because you can look at it from a really the name came from reading times meritocracy and then supporting democracy. But there's also the component of epistocracy, this idea of a society that is, you know, being learned and having knowledge would give you more influence. It's being epistocracy is a dangerous thing, because it's very easy to be manipulated by people in power and who have privilege to ignore lesser people. But if you can make it data driven and make it a true meritocracy, because right now, people will say that meritocracy is is deeply flawed, and we don't really have meritocracy, because really, most of the time, you just have a huge luck up already. And I really love this idea with the redocracy of allowing people to be recognized for the work they put in on their own terms, and wherever they start and not taking anything else into consideration. You know, like, when you start on redocracy, it doesn't matter that you might be rich, it doesn't matter that you might, you can augment your stuff to give people some content, say, hey, look, I hope you'll give me uh, some credibility, because I have this degree or whatever. But ultimately, it's like, okay, but how have you kept up with educating yourself? And how have you contributed? Like, what have you actually done to like help out? Or is this like, some theory from like 30 years ago that you haven't brushed up on in ages? And I just think there's nuances there that are very important to reviving the idea of an authentic meritocracy, especially when we talk about a knowledge society, versus meritocracy in this like gatekeepered, archaic, you know, kind of world. Let's dig deeper into that, because I think that's a really interesting... I hadn't realized that redocracy came from meritocracy. That makes sense. You know, one of the big 
philosophical aims of readocracy is to create a world that actually gives people credit for doing the readings. You know, as you said, you know, you might have a degree, you might have gone to school, you might, you know, have some of the signals of education from traditional education, but you may not spend any time in any given day, you know, educating yourself on what's actually happening in the modern world. What readocracy allows you to do is to actually get credit for doing the reading and learning that you do on your own outside of a traditional education system. Talk to us a little bit about how readocracy thinks about credentials and and why it does it that way. Well, so there's like two components there. I think one is the aspect that if we look at our whole life, our formal education, like when we go to college, university, or include the high school component, is such a tiny part of it. Like if you're fortunate enough to live like a good full life, um, it's such a small part of it. And what's really interesting is how the further you get from that formal education, the more it can actually become a ball and chain, like or something weighing you down where you get pigeonholed by this idea of who you are. And especially in an economy and in a world where people are evolving so quickly and job hopping is the norm now and people want to change careers so frequently, being stuck with that idea of who you are and that being the only representation of your knowledge is, really becomes a burden. I mean, it becomes a liability. And so to go further than that, like if you're only going by job titles, same thing. Oh, this is what you've done until now. I guess that's the only thing you're ever going to do for the rest of your life. And so having another data point that is more current is more dynamic and yet is transparent and can be checked and is shown in a very compelling way, I think is very powerful to give people that kind of liberation from credentials that can actually bog them down. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, you get rid of universities or colleges or whatever. Those are very important parts of our lives. They're important indicators. I just think that there's a world of learning that happens around that, especially for our lives. I mean, it's not a coincidence that every post-secondary institution is trying to get into lifelong learning. Sure, there's a business side, but also it's just a reflection of the world right now and a need for people to showcase who they are. And so that's one side of it. And I think the other side is the importance of democratizing the way we signal our credibility on subjects. So the internet, of course, democratized our access to information. But what's really interesting is it hasn't democratized our credentialing of our relationship to information. And so that's still stuck behind gatekeepers. The information used to be behind gatekeepers. The, the credentialing is still stuck behind gatekeepers. And I don't want to ruffle any feathers too much because I want to collaborate with these institutions as well. And we already are. But even micro-credentials, when you look at a lot of the formal definitions of micro-credentials coming from school boards and coalitions and associations, it is this kind of self-referential like, oh, you know, it's a micro-credential, but if it hasn't been approved through the specific process of so-and-so institution, you know, too bad. It doesn't count. And what we really want to do is facilitate credentials that generate themselves in a way that is self-evident. You don't need a gatekeeper. You don't even need to trust redocracy as a brand in the same way that you need to trust Harvard or whatever it may be. You just know that it works and you can check for yourself. So it's kind of the difference between walking into an interview and saying, here, look at me, I graduated from this very prestigious school, just trust this diploma I have, versus, hey, I'm so committed to this subject, here's my redocracy certificate on it. There's a QR code on it, by the way, just click the link or hold up your phone, and it's going to pull up my live transcript. And you can ask me about any of it. And it shows you the time I spent, the type of focus I gave, the number of credits I gave, you can go check the source. It even shows you contributions I made in discussions that were appreciated by other people who know about this subject, not just any old Yahoo. And on that link, there's also another link where it says, if you're not sure how this works, click it, 
and you'll see how you're tracked in real time in 60 seconds. And so that becomes a self-evident system versus something that relies entirely on brand and gatekeepers and this kind of like old inefficient system. And I kind of see it as, again, like that old inefficient system. Again, these are very important pillars. But why is there such a steep drop off from the pinnacle of that pillar to nothing versus what should actually be a pyramid or a mound and a huge mound where that's just like the center surrounded by so much that should be checkable, should be self-evident, should be something you can leverage? It's a vision that I think is very exciting, especially for those autodidacts or people out there who have spent you know, hundreds of hours studying subjects out of interest or out of professional need, but don't have formal degrees on those subjects and may not even have access to micro credentials, as you're saying. It is, you know, the internet did democratize access to information. And there are people every day going very deep and learning extremely complicated and interesting and worthwhile and valuable things on the internet. And then without having that formal degree or diploma or micro credential or, you know, certificate online, there's no way for them to prove it outside of, you know, an hour long conversation where they impress somebody, which is very hard to even get. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I just wanted to add, there's an individual personal consequence to this. And there's also a macroeconomic consequence because personally, I mean, again, the, you know, there's all this talk of mental health, wellness, and part of mental health is you know, the anxiety and stress of what's going on in the world. I don't think there's, you'll see so many memes, like dark memes all over the place saying like, oh, I look at the news and I feel like this, like, but beyond that, it's also the ability to show who you are and be recognized for who you are. I mean, it's like self-actualization to a certain degree. And the lack of being able to do that easily and feeling like you have to run through these hoops and spend all this money to get that recognition is not healthy for society, especially in the society we live in. But on the macroeconomic sense, I think it's fascinating that we have the great resignation we have labor shortage, we have a war for talent, we have all these things that it feels like we're in a rapidly evolving economy, there's a need for the collective workforce to be much more fluid and shape shifting. And yet we're expecting that to work when we're trying to jam it into these really rigid pillars and try to align it. And of course, we end up, you know, jamming our figurative fingers and hurting ourselves all the time being left out constantly. And so what would it mean? I mean, I would challenge any listener, just like the thought experiment, I guarantee that if you ask any of your friends or colleagues to say, hey, if you could just start over right now, like, and you could get actually recognized for any subject you're passionate about without needing to go to school, but just on learning you're willing to do on your own time and like groups you can be part of and having that all count, what would you be interested in doing? And would you change your career right now? I'm willing to bet that the fact that right now that's more of a zero to one, like it's binary. It's like, well, no, I either go to school or invest in a certificate or do all these things that are like very prescriptive and on a very different schedule versus something that's more organic, I think it would open up so much of that fluidity that would actually be very healthy for the economy and not only give people more opportunity, but also have a more functional and efficient economy. Absolutely. And that type of lifelong learning transcript would also be accessible to the learner and even to other learners looking to follow in their path. One aspect of Redocracy we haven't talked about I want to dig into is the idea of the reading lists and that, you know, when you are using the Redocracy application, you can actually add any article to any kind of reading list and then share it as basically a curriculum or a set of information to others. So there's a opportunity for user-generated content. And then because Redocracy actually tracks reading, you know, if 
you can get credit for finishing someone else's reading list. If they list 10 articles to read about any particular subject, let's say microfinance, there here are 10 amazing articles about microfinance. If somebody finishes all 10 articles to the extent where they've actually gone through them, read the entire thing, watched all the videos, kept their attention on it the whole time, there's a credential that can be on the other side of that. So talk us through the sort of plug-in to list to credential pathway, because I just think our listeners would find it interesting to understand the experience. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked that question. So there's like a couple of paths to the credentialing path, but in any case, they're extremely straightforward and like easy to implement. So the lowest hanging fruit, I guess, the direct path is you just make a collection. So a collection, again, is like a reading list. There's a lot of ways you can think of it, but a reading list is the easiest way. But within this, you can include videos, you can include articles. Soon you're going to be able to add tweets. There's a lot of stuff you can add to it, papers, whatever. And as the admin of the collection, you could say, well, I want to turn on credentials on this. I can turn on badges, or if it's above a certain threshold of credits, you can also assign a certificate, a really nice looking certificate. And the badges are more like a layers of they ramp up so you can have a maximum of three which is bronze silver and gold and then as the admin you just set the requirements required to trigger that badge or certificate so you know if there's 500 credits a bounty of 500 credits in the particular collection you made you would say well okay for the bronze badge you need to just hit 100 for silver you need to hit 300 and for gold you need to hit 450 or whatever it may be and so once and that becomes like automated right so once you set that then as the people work their way through, as long as they hit those thresholds by, you know, and Redocracy is verifying if they've actually done the work, and again, it is very hard to game, then, you know, it triggers the credential. And the person gets the credential. You as an administrator have a dashboard with insights that help you understand who's earned them, you know, what's resonating. It's all privacy first, but you do have the data to the extent that it's comfortable. And the user now gets this credential, which looks really nice. It tells you, you know, who was involved in curating it, the time you spent, the credits you got, it has a QR code so anybody can scan it, whether it's on LinkedIn or anywhere else, and just check the live transcript. And so it's really end-to-end, very lightweight, but again, it fulfills that need for things to be self-evident and mobile. So that's really kind of how it works. And the thing I want to add to it, because, you know, from a pedagogical perspective, when we talk about learning, obviously, you know, is reading something enough to understand it? And is it really learning is a question, obviously, people have on their mind often. And what we've done, I mean, there's a few things. First of all, because Redocracy is such a rich annotation layer, your ability to add notes and annotations is, of course, a way to improve recall. And it's something that people use a lot in Redocracy. But there are discussion groups on Redocracy. This is a feature we kind of had within the beta privately and we're about to turn on. And everything you say within a discussion counts as a piece of content that can itself earn positive feedback. And that's how you get your contribution credits. And so the data starts balancing between being just consumption, which we think of as likely knowledge, and contributions, which if they get feedback from other people have learned about the subject, those are applied knowledge. How are you applying it with people who know what they're talking about or do they appreciate what you have to say? And that being said, I just want to add one caveat that, again, I think people can be quite dismissive to say, well, okay, is that, you know, what is likely knowledge if somebody read something to understand it? I think that's a valid question, but it becomes less valid the more somebody is consumed. So I think the value of likely knowledge improves exponentially as somebody consumes, right? So if you read one article on something and tell me, hey, I know about the subject, I read one article, yes, I have the right to be skeptical. If you tell me and it's verified that you have read 307 articles and watched videos on this subject fully, it'd be pretty remarkable if you're still incompetent on the subject. Again, assuming a system that actually verifies. So yeah, that's just like an important distinction. 
And the ability to add that contribution credit and see how people digest, recall, retain, and then use the information adds a lot to that. I just wanted to also add that it does add a lot, but also what's cool is as an admin or just whoever is making these things, these collections or these discussions, you can use that within the credentials to say, oh, you can only join our discussion once you've earned the bronze badge. So you actually have to have done the required learning to even participate in the discussion. And then getting the gold or the certificate requires you to have gotten positive feedback in the discussion. So there's like a whole way you can stack these things to really enforce that in the credentials. That's really exciting. One of the themes that listeners may have noticed as you talk about all the different ways in meritocracy is different than traditional education is that it's very decentralized. It's very peer-to-peer. An individual can make a collection which others can consume and they can receive credentials from each other. A individual can read from a media outlet and get credit just for having read there without having to prove it on a test or get a credential from a central institution. Those of us who listen to this podcast, you know, may be reminded of, you know, decentralization is sort of a sister concept to Web3 and the blockchain movements. And I know that you have thought a lot about Web3. And I'd love to just discuss briefly some of the ways in which Redocracy is and isn't related to the Web3 version of decentralization. Yeah. So, so much to work with there. It's a great question. And so to answer that, and just a quick backtrack on the point of anybody making credentials, I just want to add the caveat because I'm sure some people would, you know, immediately perk up at this or be concerned. You actually have to have hit a certain level in Redocracy to be allowed to make a credential because, of course, it get completely out of hand if somebody who has no experience in a subject is out claiming that... I mean, then we get back to the original sin of the internet, right? Where anybody claims to be an expert, and as long as they're inflammatory and can present themselves well, then you know suddenly they have a megaphone. And so the idea here is that even the credentials that are generated, they themselves, you know, you have to put in the work to get to that level or, you know, submit evidence that is sufficient that, you know, people would take that seriously and it'd be meaningful. So just wanted to add that caveat. So on Web3... I think within our team, we're very, which maybe you'd have gathered even just from this conversation, we, we are very first principles oriented. And that, I think, we would argue, doesn't actually fit well with a lot of what's happening around the Web3 discourse. If you think from a first principles perspective, it brings out the issues that are really evident. So, I mean, one of the simplest when we talk about Web3 is a lot of the applications you see, it's so easy to just ask the question that is, well, why do you actually need to do this in a blockchain context? Or why do you need to use crypto for this? And a lot of times you'll actually find there isn't a very good answer. It ends up being really convoluted and people get defensive. And and so, you know, on one hand, I would say you don't need to do this through blockchain because I think it lends itself to an ecosystem that you'll end up with a lot of the issues that the current internet or web two, if you want to call it, has. But that being said, I don't think that the idea itself of a more, again, meritocratic internet where you share in the wealth and you are recognized more appropriately and more fairly is, of course, a bad thing. Like, that's a fantastic vision. And I actually think that's why people are so excited about Web3, like, regardless of the issues and the very rampant, ugly side of it, which I'd say at this point is the majority, unfortunately. And it's almost a reality where the idea of the possibility is what allows us to turn a blind eye to the ugliness of what's happening in practice. So I think we should continue to have the conversations and aspire to the possibilities, but shouldn't be so married to what's happening in practice 
and should be striving to find solutions, even if we have to start from scratch, you know, and redo the whole drawing board that we have here. And so with Redocracy, that could mean a lot of things. It could mean that at some point, yes, we are going to apply blockchain in a certain sense, and, and, and actually we are going to. There's a token element that is going to be in play. But at the same time, does it have to be like that? You know, what are the implications of Solid, like the project at, at MIT from Tim Berners-Lee? Like, what are other ways that we can fulfill the vision of Web3 without necessarily going with what people insist must be the solution right now? So I know that's a bit meandering, but I think with Web3 and education in particular, I think one part that matters is when people talk about DAOs. So decentralized autonomous organizations. So for listeners who might not be familiar with this, it's one of the most important terms in Web3. And it's this idea that an organization can be run and the power you have in voting and making decisions is based on the amount of currency you hold in that respective token or currency. And currently, you would buy that. So you'd buy your way and therefore by investing more heavily, you have more say. But that ideally would be through other means as well. You earn tokens through other things. One of the issues with such a structure and with DAOs in general, when we talk about non-financial DAOs, so just having a company that runs as a DAO, where it's more inclusive of who gets to make decisions. Having a community run as a DAO, where it's more inclusive and meritocratic around how decisions are made. Well, okay, how do you move beyond just financialization, somebody buying their way to influence? How do you move beyond the issue of somebody earning that token or that currency to have more influence through sheer quantity, so just being very active regardless of how you know helpful it is, how do you qualify that so that we avoid the same issues of Web2? And so I think qualifying that behavior through redocracy, so whether redocracy is a protocol or however it's integrated, so that there is a secondary filter, a second proof of work to show that you've done your homework and you deserve to have a say because you've also bothered to really inform yourself and you've been really helpful to others in a knowledge context. I think that's the part that is maybe most interesting in an education perspective, because it's this much broader idea of education and learning and knowledge, which applies to just how we run companies, how we run communities. What does it take for somebody to have shown that they're informed and therefore should have as much influence as they say they should rather than just being provocative? And so I think that's where the crossover is in in an applied context. That's a fascinating answer. And what I'm hearing you say is that the Web3 movement is sort of has pros and cons right now. The cons may outweigh the pros a little bit just because some of the sins and you know of Web 2 are being recreated and some of the vision of a decentralized, equitable world where platforms don't get to intermediate and sort of make all the decisions is so appealing to so many people that a lot of people are jumping into it. But as of right now, the vision is still a vision and it's not seeing amazing applications quite yet. And one of the reasons it's not seeing applications like that quite yet is because many of the existing structures reward money that you buy your way into a DAO. And if you spend more money, you get more voting rights. And, you know, for those of us interested in democracy, (laughs) buying more voting rights is not exactly the future we want. So I think what I'm hearing you say is a redocracy would allow people to be rewarded from their knowledge, their acquisition of knowledge, their contribution of knowledge, their sharing of knowledge, and may be able to take some of the financial aspects out of the current way that DAOs are structured and make it more knowledge-based. You also mentioned that blockchain don't have to be together necessarily, which is really interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, to that point, it's so funny to me how people say like, you know, critics, but even just rational people are on the fence saying, yeah, like it's kind of ugly how this whole world 
that we're currently experiencing around the Web3 discourse is turning into this like hyper financialization of every possible thing. Like every tiny thing is turned into an opportunity to invest and to finance and to speculate, like speculate maybe the most. And it's like, well, yeah, what did you expect when it's literally through a, like everything's a currency and everything needs to be, you know, speculated on, like that's how it works. And so it's maybe not surprising that we would get to this kind of ugly outcome right now. And the question would be like, what would something else look like? Or what would it look like if we at least balanced it out to say, you know, what if it didn't start with currency in the sense of money, but it was like knowledge currency, right? Like how you measure that, how much would that clean up the system? When we talk about Web3 and a future internet that we can be proud of, do we really want it to be as a starting point just around different forms of money, which is like arguably... Like if the internet is synonymous with our information commons and how we learn and our collective pool of knowledge and keeping it pure and as high quality as possible, is that really the starting point and the framework that we want to start from? And so I think those are just open-ended questions that I think about a lot. And that's where the kind of readocracy fits in as well when we talk about Web3. It makes me think about a future in which the biggest voice in the room, maybe you call it I won't use words like CEO or boss because in a decentralized organization, you maybe wouldn't have terms like that. But the person with the most cloud is also by definition, the most informed person who has read the most, contributed the most, knows the most about the field. And that is a pretty interesting vision to know that the loudest voices are also the most informed voices is really intriguing. Yeah. Can you imagine if Twitter was like that right now, or Facebook was like that right now when you saw a tweet and you looked at the replies, it wasn't just the person with the most likes, but there's also like a little extra line that said, here's all the reading this person has done on the subject. And here's how helpful they've been. And by the way, you should know that a huge proportion of their context comes up from only one source. And this is it, or whatever it may be. And then that would be affect the algorithm, right? Like the person right now who might have the most likes, and therefore is on top said something really flippant and snide and, and you know, people find it funny, but it's actually very ignorant. And like that person would rank down because actually this is the first time they've ever come in to talk about the subject or, you know, the context of, you know, what we're seeing so common often where you have somebody who is an expert in one field and therefore they suddenly feel that they're qualified to be very influential and have a strong opinion in a totally unrelated field. And because, you know, we don't again have this layer is like a runaway train where somebody like, oh, this person is like super smart. I'm going to trust them on this when you have maybe not as well known experts or people have bothered to do their homework who like are not being seen or taken seriously just because you know might they not have that so yeah i think it is very important in a lot of applied contexts, whether it's at work even in a di context we talk about inclusion you know people who deserve recognition a lot of times are the ones who don't want to speak up or they're afraid to and so you know if you want to talk about inclusivity in a system that allows people to get there i think that's a big component that ties into this as well absolutely i think that's a terrific note to end on. It's a very exciting vision of the future. And wow, I would love to live in a world where knowledge is, the, knowledge is the currency. We always end our podcast with two questions, Mario. One is, what is a trend in the ed tech field that you feel like is happening right now that our listeners might want to keep their eye on? Oh my goodness. Which one to pick? I would have to say, I mean, it's hard to pick. I think one of them would have to be micro-credentials, but not micro-credentials in the sense that we're talking about them now. I think it's where that trend is going to go. So like I said earlier, we've gotten to micro-credentials, we're getting more flexible, but I think we're already finding out that people need more flexibility around them and maybe an alternative like micro-micro-credentials or something. 
And I'm really curious to see where that goes. And I think there's such of a pull force on that from the economy, from what you know students are saying. That's a space that I think there's going to be activity in a lot. Yeah. And I guess around that also how, again, we go from learning to applying in more flexible context. Maybe we could call those nano credentials. Yeah, I love that. What a good term. <laughs> and then our last question is, what is one book, you can also name a newsletter, Twitter post that you would recommend for people who really want to understand the issues we talked about today in greater depth? It's my go-to book. And I think this is more through the lens of media literacy. I think it's still, of course, an extremely valid and central concept to learning and ed tech and just education in the broader sense. So that's Amusing Ourselves to Death, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. It's it's subtitled Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. And it's prophetic. It's just incredible. And I think it's one of those books that even though he kind of meant it to be about the age of television, it somehow has become way more true about the internet age. And it's an incredible read. Fantastic. As always, we will put the link to Mario's recommended resource Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman in the show notes. Yeah. And if I could, I think a good way to end here would be if I could just read a tiny bit from the foreword to this book, which it's the most impactful foreword I've ever read. So could I just read that? Please. Okay. So the foreword is essentially, he says, we were keeping our eye on 1984, obviously referring to the book, uh, Orwellian you know, prophecy. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. So this book was published in 1985. And he goes on to say, but we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. And he goes on, I'm going to skip a bit here, but the part I really wanted to read, which is so powerful to me, what Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us, but Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture, but Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumpo puppy. As Huxley remarked in Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and the rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny fail to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. So in short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. And this book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. Wow, powerful. Thank you for letting me read that. I think it's something we all need to internalize. It's true. Mario Vasilevsky, thank you so much. It's been truly interesting. Thanks for being here on EdTech Insiders. Thank you, Alex. Thanks so much for having me.